episode three. In the first two episodes, we looked at frameworks and literature at national scales. Now it's time to focus in on Vermont. On this episode of Funded, we will talk to local experts on the policies and structure of the Vermont funding system. We will also learn about problems the state faces, such as declining enrollment and cost efficiencies. The two major funding policies this podcast will follow are Act 60 and Act 46. Act 60 is a grounding policy that we need to understand in order to see the change over time in Vermont's education equity. Act 46 is a more recent policy change and will be a major topic topic of conversation for a majority of this podcast. I'm Carol Brigham. I live in Whiting. I've lived in Whiting, Vermont all my life. Um, I went to um, school at Whiting School. My dad was on the school board um, for a period of time right before he died, but he was also a lister for many, many years for, this, for the town. And after he died, I um, was asked to get on the school board. I did wait a year or two before taking a role, and then I was on the school board for 24 years, I believe. Carol Brigham is the epitome of a small-town local Vermonter. Carol and her husband, Rusty, live in a log cabin-style house up on a hill overlooking farmland. They have a large flock of chickens that they use to sell eggs at local farmers markets. Together, they own a cleaning business. Vermonters who were around in the 90s know the family as the namesakes for the Brigham decision, a lawsuit that resulted in the creation of Act 60. Act 60 restructured the way the tax system funded schools in order to create a more equitable system across towns. Before we understand what Act 60 looks like now, we have to go back in time to understand the landscape before Act 60. So can you talk a little bit about the inequities that were occurring at schools like Whiting prior to Act 60? Well, yes, the inequities that were happening um, when I got on the school board and when my father was on the school board was the funding system in Vermont relied totally for the, the, the school um, that you were the, for the town that you lived in. So only the money that that town could raise was going to fund that school, uh, which then created all kinds of inequities of tax for the property owner, and that followed into the school because the property, you know, the you know the budget is approved by the local community, and they did the best they could. So we were taxed very very high in Whiting but the amount of money that it could raise was very low compared to a, a town that had more uh, better properties. Whiting's a farming community, it's going away from it at this point, but then it was basically, you know, it's a population of 400 people, usually tops, maybe 500. So its school was only funded with what it could raise. So a lot of things were not happening there, you know, for, uh, education-wise, not lack of love and community support and such, but for the amount, you know, what you could raise to get extra teachers in for music and art. A lot of it was done by the teachers themselves who were not outside um, people coming in for those. This system gave wealthier towns more resources while poorer towns were left to make do with what they had often paying higher taxes than their neighbors in a wealthier town. 
in Carol's words, schools were paying more than their share of taxes and getting less bang for their buck in their school system. Schools like Whiting were paying too much in taxes and not able to adequately fund their schools, knew something needed to change. So, in 1997, the American Civil Liberties Union made a case against the state. They were arguing that the current funding system was unconstitutional because it was not equal for all. They wanted to paint a clear picture of the problem, so they found plaintiffs that were landowners, but they also wanted students from the poor schools to represent those being unfairly underfunded. One of those kids was Amanda Brigham, Carol's daughter. Suddenly, Carol was not only a school board member, but she and her family represented the fight for funding equity for other small schools at a legislative level. I listened to Bob Ginsburg, who was the lawyer, lead lawyer on that um, for, the, for, my, for the Civil Liberties Union at the time, um, who was proposing this. And they were trying to set it up. It had been, it's been in the works, I think, for quite a few years. I was kind of new to it and I was young, but they were looking for young students who would, were from the right towns that were paying more than their share of taxes and getting less bang for the buck in their school system. So I listened to that as a school board member and listened to a, uh, um, him speak and agreed right away that my daughter, who was very young, because they expected this to get into the courts and could sit in the court system for years. So they wanted a student that was still going to be in school. So that's kind of the funny part. And then they wanted to um, have students and not just landowners. They were landowners and school systems themselves. So Amanda's name ended up being the t on the top because she was a, a student and <laughs> alphabetically she was <laughs> um, came first before the other student. So, um, and I, we didn't know that how fast it was gonna go, how slow it was gonna go. And so, um, but we jumped in and um, held on and it was very quick actually it was only really a two-year overall two-year process so she was in third grade uh, maybe just finished third grade when act 60 was signed into law a few months after the first hearing the vermont supreme court agreed that the current system was not fair they stated in the report that quote in this appeal we decide that the current system for funding public education in vermont with its substantial dependence on local property taxes and resultant wide disparities in revenues available to local school districts deprives children of an equal education, educational opportunity in violation of the Vermont Constitution." Unquote. This decision was then referred to as the Brigham decision, but the work wasn't done yet. In fact, it had barely begun. The lawsuit happened and it was a a great win. The problem then be, turned to the leg, what the problem was the legislature had to, they had to come up with the funding system that had to be signed into law. That's Act 60. The lawsuit has nothing, you know, it's, it, you know, the court, you know, it was a jump and that, and that had nothing to do with me. I was not a lawmaker. Act 60 is known as the Equal Education Opportunity Act. It replaced the varying local school tax rates with one statewide property tax rate. 
So under the law, any two towns that vote to spend the same amount per pupil have the same tax rate. This does not mean that each town must spend the same amount per pupil, but it states that this funding is not a result of town wealth. Some towns paid more in taxes after Act 60 was passed, and some paid less. As Carol Brigham describes it, Act 60 set the new mentality that everybody's money took care of everybody's kids. I think that Act 60 um, is one example of true landmark legislation in Vermont. Jeff Francis has been the executive director of the Vermont Superintendents Association since July of 1996. He witnessed the Brigham decision as well as the creation of Act 60. He has seen the lasting legacy of the bill. Uh, it changed the landscape for education funding with a focus on more equitable distribution of resources uh, in order to make sure that uh, students had access to the resources that they needed on an equitable basis. The foundation uh, for Act 60 was set by the Brigham decision, which uh, in the simplest terms ruled that the education funding system that we had in Vermont was not constitutional because it was inequitable on a community-to-community -community basis in terms of making resources available for the education of students. The Brigham decision, although a monumental win for small rural communities, also meant a new increase in taxes in wealthier communities. Carol and her family felt the negative side effects of being in the public spotlight. You know, so all of these richer communities all of a sudden we're paying taxes that they'd never paid before, but they were taxes we'd always paid. So, so you know, we're like, well, yeah, it's fair, you know? And so it ended up just being something we didn't talk about unless somebody brought it to, you know. So I stopped wearing name tags at places, and I just, all these things I wouldn't do because I just didn't know who I was going to face. But then there's a group of people that have always been supportive and always been there for, for us to, um, you know, vent to if it became an issue. In 2003, the Vermont Legislature created Act 68, which reformed a few aspects of Act 60 to increase equity. According to the Barry Montpelier Times Argus, Act 60, quote, infused state money from a higher sales tax into the system, and it set different tax rates for homes owned by residents and those owned by non-residents. Residents pay considerably less under this two-tier system, unquote. However, even with improved funding policy, one problem continued for Vermont schools, declining enrollment. But then it became that student populations decreased. The local towns kept lose, getting less money per, because they had less students. And as you got less students, the problem kind of recreated itself, which is what became the focus to make equity for all students. They needed to consolidate so that there wasn't so many small schools, which, you know, was, it, it was ine inevitable unless we had more people here with more students. Here's Jeff Francis to break down why declining enrollment is putting schools at risk. A phenomenon that Vermont has had to contend with nearly since the passage of Act 60 back in 1997 is this issue of declining enrollment because taxation is determined on education spending per pupil 
and education spending per pupil is determined by dividing the number of students into the school budget. Operating budgets for school districts have a tendency to have a lot of fixed costs and generally increase on a percentage basis year after year, regardless of whether there's a decline in enrollment. But if the enrollment declines, then the denominator declines. Um, and the, the um, cost per pupil goes up and taxes go up. So I think that the places that it could be argued have been most at risk are places where there have been declines in enrollment and communities are trying to sustain a good quality education system in the face of the declining enrollment. There's a couple of things that have happened um, in, in the last five or six years um, that many people would argue were intended to assist with that issue. Uh, one more controversial, I think, than the other, um, and that's Act 46. Jeff Francis is right. During this project and in almost every interview, I asked people what they thought about Act 46, and I received a lot of mixed responses. Some people felt strongly against it, and some strongly for it, but many felt a sense of sadness, and would talk about how it was inevitable, but not what they wanted. So one of the principles of Act 46 was to aggregate smaller systems into somewhat larger systems, not for the purpose of changing the um, population in schools or threatening small schools, but rather to operate in a somewhat larger system so that you could provide resources across a set of, set of schools instead of to a, a singular school. So the, the Act 46 um, uh, policy was really intended to assist with declines in enrollment and uh, expanding educational opportunities. According to the Agency of Education, Quote, the goal of Act 46 to improve education outcomes and equity by creating larger and more efficient school governance structures, unquote. The policy combined town-wide governance boards to district-level boards. However, before we dive any deeper, it's important that we understand the role of school governance and the various layers of power within the education system. So the classic structure for the delivery of public education, not only in Vermont, but across the country, typically includes an elected school board whose job it is to bring the voice of the public to policy and operations of school systems. So the school board sets policy, develop the budget, make sure that the school district officials, meaning the appointed officials, superintendent, principal, and so on and so forth, are working consistent with the mission and vision of the school system. The superintendent functions as the chief executive officer for the school system. So what I like to say is the superintendent is hired by the school board to carry out the day-to-day -day operations for the school system and make sure that things um, run smoothly and consistently with uh, what the elected school board wants. Um, so that person functions as the chief executive officer. 
often uh, presiding over a, a central office that could include a business manager, special education director, and so on and so forth. The central office, under the leadership of the superintendent, um, supports uh, what happens on a daily basis in the school buildings. So if you were to put it in sort of the simplest terms, the school board is elected. They're the governing body. The superintendent is the chief executive officer who presides over the entire system. Principals are building managers. They work with teachers to make sure that um, children are getting a, a good education. And teachers, of course, deliver, deliver education to the students. Before Act 46, each town's school board developed a budget for that specific school. Now, under Act 46, one district board develops budgets for each school. One person who knows the ins and outs of Act 46 is House Representative Peter Conlin. Peter also happens to be my neighbor. I learned a lot from him during my time as a student representative on the school board in high school. My name is Peter Conlin. I'm a resident of Cornwall. Uh, I have been a school board member for about 17 years and I am currently a member of the Vermont House serving on the House Education Committee. Uh, so I was elected to the Union High School Board in Middlebury in 2005 and have been a school board member ever since. Um, and during that process, we went from being a supervisory union in the Middlebury area to becoming a unified district under Act 46. Uh, and so I was part of that process promoting um, in the area, um, unifying as a, as a district, and then I served as the first chair of our unified district called the Addison Central School District. Um, I served in that role for five years and have stepped back and am now just a, a board member uh, on the unified board. Can you talk about the factors that led to the creation of Act 46? Uh, yeah, so again, I wasn't serving in the legislature at the time, but I can really talk about the factors that led our district to unify and that um, Act 46 really provided a great catalyst to make that happen. And, and it's really a number of things. Um, the state had been slowly trying to make supervisory unions, which are collections of school districts under a single superintendent, do more together. Um, part of what uh, was required by law is that um, those sort of supervisory unions would have um, uniform curriculum developed centrally, uh, that special education would be developed centrally and serve all the school's needs uh, within a supervisory union. And so really moving to the next level of a unified governance is, is kind of the next logical advancement. So in our district, for example, we had a, a union middle school and high school serving all seven towns, and then all seven towns had a, a independent elementary school and each one had their own school board, and then they all provided members to the supervisory union board in a, in a very complex web that ultimately involved 54 people in the governance of our school district. Um, through unification, the high school, middle school, and all the schools that feed it are under a single school board uh, overseeing education in the seven towns that make it up. Peter Conlin has been an advocate of Act 46. He said he sees the policy as helping bring students together and create more equity across a district. And this has led to, you know, not only um, some efficiencies, but also 
a, a much more equitable school system. In other words, these school these kids all come together into one middle school, high school, but they had previously had very different experiences with their education coming into it. So Act 46 was really designed to not only gain those efficiencies, but also to look at equity of education within school systems. And as a unified district, we now have much more flexibility to make sure every student or every school has what, it's, has what it needs in order to be successful. And sometimes that means that one school might get less and one school might get more, but it makes it so that all students sort of come together in seventh through 12th grade under a much more equitable system. When you talk about like one town might get more, one town might get less, like what are the factors that are deciding that? And what inequity did you see before Act 46 that really led to needing to um, take this on? So coming up with a definition for equity and what it means is, is a very tricky thing. Um, for me, it, it sort of all came it was best explained to me in a cartoon and in which it showed um, four kids of different heights trying to look over a fence uh, at a baseball game. And it was really defining the difference between equality and equity. In equality, every kid got the same size box to look over, to stand up on and look over the fence, which was great for some kids and not enough for others. And equity was providing each kid the size box they needed to be able to look over the fence. To me, that, that kind of explained it beautifully in a, in a cartoon. Um, so, you know, what we had in our school district here concerning equity is that it was probably the best way to, to, to have seen it was looking at the kids coming into seventh grade, where all of our seven towns come together for the first time in the education of, of children. And teachers at the middle school could really be able to say, I know that kid came from that school, that kid came from that school because of their level of preparedness for the middle school. And um, you know that was a real uh, uh, equity issue. And what it showed was that in some schools, kids weren't getting as much as kids in other schools. Now that can be an issue of equality and equity, but equity really meant let's make sure that every kid has what they need to succeed. And what that can mean in our school district is that a previously very well-resourced school might not see as, as great a resource a need um, and that those resources might be deployed to another school. So one school might get more uh, literacy specialists per student than another school, but that's because it's based on the need. So rather than saying every school gets two literacy specialists, one school might get three, one school might get none based on the need. And that's really equity as opposed to equality. Peter Conlin said that despite the help of Act 60 tax rates, some towns within districts were raising more tax funding to provide services to students, while other towns were not willing to spend as much on the school. And this made a difference within the same districts when kids from small schools entered a larger secondary school. So um, it was really locally based decisions and you, you have a we have a very um, socioeconomically diverse region so that there were some communities that were a little hesitant to spend more on school because it meant a raise in taxes and other communities where um, cost was no object for their elementary school. And uh, so those local decisions have a huge bearing on what was being spent for resources for the kids. Um, can you talk 
a little bit about why school consolidation is often talked about in conversation with Act 46 and how those two things relate. Yes. So uh, school consolidation, uh, which we can just call it school closure because that's what we're really talking about, uh, and Act 46 often get linked together more so than they really deserve. The fact of the matter is, is before Act 46, we were many schools in the state were already talking about whether they had a viable school or not based on population. And it's really a question of demographics. We have been going through population decline in Vermont, where we have gone from, uh, I think, about 110,000 down to about 80,000, depending on how you count kids, overall statewide. Yet we are still operating essentially the same number of schools. So that raises your cost per pupil up significantly and, and makes you say, well, if we've lost 30,000 students, shouldn't we have 30,000 students worth of fewer schools? So this was really a conversation that was going on regardless of Act 46. Um, but what Act 46 did do was bring together, together a unified governance that made many school districts look at their system as a whole and not as individual little communities and say, can we both do better for kids and do better for taxpayers by operating fewer schools? The fact is, is if you have an open school building, you have to staff it. Um, and there's a certain minimum number of staff you need to have to operate a school. And uh, so that can become very expensive if the number of students that you have there are few. It also becomes a, a drain on, on services and resources that, that you can provide for kids because it, it, it's hard to justify providing one level of nursing, or a similar level of nursing at a school with 40 kids for a school with 200 kids. Um, and so again, you ended up with a, uh, an equity issue where the small school may only be getting one day a week of a certain service when a large school will have, might have somebody there full time. It means that money that could be spent on opportunities for students isn't available because we have to heat, transport, and staff a building, perhaps unnecessarily. Um, and, we, and then we had certain financial restrictions in the state where if you spend a certain amount per pupil, you are penalized. So all of those factors led school boards to really starting to have hard conversations about how many schools they operate. Many people, like Peter, felt the creation of Act 46 and the closure of small schools was inevitable, but it didn't make it any less easy. Peter Conlin explains that even though the boards need to value the cost efficiency and education equity, it goes beyond that and represents a sense of identity for communities. When you have a tradition of operating a school within your town borders, that's gone on, you know, for a hundred years, to talk about anything different is very difficult and can definitely stir up a lot of emotions. Many communities are based much of their identity on their elementary school. It's, it's the place where many of the adults in a community first get to know one another um, as they uh, come together through their, their kids' education. For many Vermont towns, Act 46 represented power and autonomy taken away from small schools and taking away a crucial community center. Carol Brigham's town of Whiting saw the effects of school consolidation 
when Whiting students were sent to a neighboring school to increase cost efficiency. The Whiting Elementary School closed and is used as preschool and daycare. But to Carol and others, the school was more than just a building. The Whiting School means to me and the Whiting community a place to gather, um, to meet your neighbors, to have a potluck dinner, um, to have the concerts and grandma grandparents could come. And, um, and without that, there's really nothing that's drawing people together anymore. I mean, literally now, not the fact, not just the fact that I don't have kids in the school, there really isn't anything to go down to the school for. So other than town meeting, which during COVID has not happened anyway, but currently there's really no way for me to really know anybody else in town because I don't have a reason to go meet them because we don't even have a store to go <laughs> meet somebody to get, get your milk and eggs. Um, so, so you don't meet your neighbors unless you're walking on the roads and that's just, you know, this road, you know, so it's, it's, it's kind of devastating to realize and w what is that to draw anybody with kids here because their kids aren't going to go to school locally. This idea falls within the defined framework of multifunctionality. Small schools gave people a space to socialize and to feel a sense of pride around. The physical building was the structure, while the functions produced were both education and social. The community valued the space as their own and gave the town a sense of individual community. But what happens when there aren't enough people in a town? Where does the community go, and can a community adapt to the changing landscape of Vermont enrollment? In the next episode, we will look at two rural schools to understand how the role of community and access to resources has changed with the implementation of Act 46 and COVID-19.